0: Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Quick trigger warning today. We are talking about Brett Kavanaugh, uh, nominee for the Supreme Court, which talking about apparently needs a trigger warning. We're talking about allegations against him, uh, Attempted rape, so if that's something that is difficult for you to hear about, that is what we're talking about today.
1: Yeah, and we did an episode on Brett Kavanaugh a couple weeks ago, depending on when you're listening to this, and his confirmation hearing, and we said we would update you if there was any new info, and
0: surprise, there's new info. He might be a creep. That's right. Psychology professor Christine Blasey Ford came forward with a very disturbing allegation that happened when they were both teens in Maryland. She alleges that Kavanaugh and a friend, both, quote, stumbling drunk, pushed her into a bedroom onto a bed where rock music was playing with the volume turned way up. The post description follows. While his friend watched, she said, Kavanaugh pinned her to a bed on her back and groped her over her clothes, grinding his body against hers and clumsily attempting to pull off her one-piece bathing suit and the clothing she wore over it. When she tried to scream, she said, he put his hand over her mouth. Ford told the Post that both boys were laughing
1: maniacally during the alleged assault and that she feared that Kavanaugh might inadvertently kill me. It ended when the drunken friend pounced on Kavanaugh and her, which sent them tumbling, allowing her to escape and lock herself in a bathroom. Ford also produced notes from a 2012 couples therapy session as corroboration of her account. Quote, The therapist notes, portions of which were provided by Ford and reviewed by The Washington Post, do not mention Kavanaugh's name, but say she reported that she was attacked by students, quote, from an elitist boys' school who went on to become highly respected and high-ranking members of society in Washington.
0: In a statement to The Post, Kavanaugh said, quote, I categorically and unequivocally deny this allegation. I did not do this back in high school or at any time. It's also worth noting that the friend that she says was in the room with him, Mark Judge, said he has no memory of the attack, but is also, as of this recording, refusing to testify. And you might have heard,
1: soon after these allegations surfaced, Senate Republicans issued a letter signed by 65 women vouching for his character.
0: I mean, I always carry around a letter of 65 <laughs> people who I didn't rape. You know, you just, like, have to have it. That's, like, a standard thing you have in your wallet. Like, oh— Here's a letter of all the people that I never attacked, just so that you have it for your records. That's a normal thing to be able to produce at a moment's notice.
1: That's what I've been told. There is a ton more to this story, which we will revisit in a full episode, but the parallels to Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas are Stark. In 1991, Anita Hill testified before the U.S. Senate that then-Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas sexually harassed her when they worked together. In a piece for the New York Times, Hill writes, in 1991, the phrase, they just don't get it, became a popular way of describing senators' reaction to sexual violence. With years of hindsight, mounds of evidence of the prevalence and harm that sexual violence causes individuals and our institutions, as well as a Senate with more women than ever, not getting it isn't an option for our elected representatives. In 2018, our senators must get it right.
0: I completely agree, Anita Hill. Um, I think what's happening is, at the very least, troubling, right? Like, obviously, this is something that that needs more scrutiny. Obviously, this is something, you know, it, it brings up the question of whether or not this person is fit to hold public office. I have to say, I have been really kind of shocked by a lot of the conversations happening where folks are saying, oh, well... You know, I wouldn't want to be held accountable for things I did when I was a teenager. And I think, you know we we spend so much time teaching boys and young men that their behavior matters and that how you treat people matters and that, you know, no means no. and all of this. I, I can't help but wonder how much work is being undone by these grown, successful men going on TV and saying, whatever you do in high school doesn't make a difference if you if you, attempt to rape somebody in high school, you can still, you know, still hold one of the most powerful offices in the land. Right.
1: Um, I've heard a lot of disturbing conversations around it as well. And I've heard a lot of, well, not, there's no other blemishes on his record that we can find. So just this one time, <laughs> that's okay. Like giving it sort of a pass, which it's it's not okay. And... If this is a job interview and this is a really powerful position then I think we need to take it seriously and
0: get to the bottom of it. So I personally do not agree that it has no it has no bearing on his ability to lead now, but even if that's even if that is how I felt, which I don't, if he lied about it, if he's lying about it now, that certainly matters for someone trying to be, oh, I don't know, a Supreme Court judge. And if you agree, if you think, yeah, this is something that deserves more scrutiny, we have more questions, we need a better investigation on what's going on, you know what you can do?
1: Call your senator. Call your
0: senator. (laughs) Call your senator. We hammered this home in in our first Brett Kavanaugh episode, and we're doing it again. You know, this is so important. There are so many things that are at stake with this nominee, that it's important that we, that we know what's going on and that we are making our voices heard. So please call your senator. You can do so by calling 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. And you know what? Because I live in Washington, D.C., I don't even have a senator to call so, you're doing me a personal favor by, by calling your senator on my behalf, or not on my behalf, but call <laughs> your senator for those of us who live in DC who can't call their senator. So, please do this as a personal favor. And in the meantime,
1: enjoy this classic episode on Anita Hill.
0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, even though we're talking today about something that happened in 1991, it's timely because HBO's Confirmation hits screens April 16th, in which Kerry
3: Washington is starring as Anita Hill. That's right. She also produced it. It's an important story to tell.
2: It's an absolutely important story to tell. And uh, some of you may have already seen, as I did, the documentary Anita Speaking Truth to Power, which is all about Anita Hill's testimony uh, regarding sexual harassment by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas during Thomas's confirmation hearings.
3: Yeah, and it's it was pretty surprising to a lot of people that this documentary came out Because Anita Hill is so famously private, famously private, (laughs) is that a contradiction? Um, But Hill said that she felt it was time to revisit this and for people to understand who I am and who that is is someone who really helped change this country's legal and political landscape. Although, as we talked about in our last episode, the term sexual harassment had been coined in the mid-70s, it really wasn't until this massive televised spectacle of of a hearing that the entire country, and importantly a lot of women, started talking to each other about the issue of sexual harassment.
2: Yeah, and so if you haven't gone back and listened to our previous episode on the legal history of sexual harassment, we highly recommend that you do that. Um, But Caroline, I was wondering if you remember this happening because I do, and (laughs) the way that we're framing the issue today in this podcast studio is, is much different than the way the hearing was framed when I was a kid in a very conservative home um, from what I can piece together um, from my memory. I mean, I remember her sitting there. I remember her seeing her in her blue suit. I'm sure we were not allowed to watch like the actual hearing because she was talking about things like breasts and penises. Um, but I remember her being seen in my home or described in my home as really the enemy.
3: Ooh. Yeah. No. I don't remember it at all. Honestly, I I know. I have, like, this vague lizard brain, like, knowledge that it happened, um, but I was not aware of it. If my parents watched anything about it, it was on the nightly news, and I just have no recollection. And you were busy watching Murphy Brown. I was— Super busy watching Murphy Brown and Designing Women and The Cosby Show. Well, and so when I watched that documentary, Anita Speaking Truth to Power,
2: a few months ago, I started crying, Caroline, not kidding, because it feels so long ago, and yet it is not. No, it's not. And, you know, the the 90s are having such a a heyday right now. Um, It's like everything is 90s nostalgia. And yeah, I saw a picture of Rihanna wearing a
3: choker <laughs> yeah, it's everyone, totally back.
2: Everyone's wearing chokers. I should pull out <laughs> the uh, my my handmade chokers from high school. Oh, wait. No, I shouldn't. Um, but it, watching it made me want to reach through the Internet and, and and shake it by its lapels and say, we need to remember this thing, this chapter in our not so long ago history, because. The way she was treated sitting before an all-male Senate Judiciary Committee, which included Veep, Joe Biden, um, it it was horrifying. It was a horrifying thing to witness, and I think every single woman listening should absolutely watch it. I mean, watch Kerry Washington's confirmation because she's fabulous and support her, but go back and actually watch the hearing itself
3: yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are definitely clips online. There are transcripts. You can access this information. And it's so important too, because these fourteen white male senators were essentially performing the disbelief of women. Do you know what I mean? like oh, they yeah. were they were performing how so many men felt and feel about women who claim, Any type of sexual misconduct in the workplace. Well,
2: they were performing that and performing the hypersexualization of women of color. Correct. So, I mean, that's why I think it's so important. Read the transcript, yes, if you want more details, but you gotta see it because Mm -hmm. the optics of it are just stunning. So let's set the scene, shall we? Let's go back to July 1991 when I was going through my windsuit phase. Oh, my
3: God, me too. Were they neon? Yes. Yes, of course. Yes, they were. I had so many, so many windsuits. Okay, anyway, <clears throat> right. So in July of 91, when Krista and I were windsuiting it up and swish-swishing down the hallway, President Bush the First nominated 43-year-old conservative African-American judge Clarence Thomas to replace Justice Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court amid what was then a super conservative political climate. And they figured that while Clarence Thomas was way more conservative than Thurgood Marshall, uh, he would at least maintain the racial makeup of the court. But the pinpoint Georgia natives conservative bent, I mean, and that is conservative
2: with what's bigger than a capital C, (laughs) like a massive... Washington monument sized like, C from the illuminated Bibles that monks did. That's a huge C. Yes, one of those one of those large monk C's. Conservative, <laughs> it upset a lot of groups. I mean, you had the NAACP, the National Bar Association, and the Urban League, fearing his views on affirmative action. They were worried that it would reverse the progress of the civil rights era because he was so not for affirmative action. The uh, National Organization for Women worried that he would rule against legal abortion. And the legal community
3: at large was concerned about his experience. He had less than two years of experience as a federal judge. But still, the nomination heads to the Senate Judiciary Committee's confirmation hearings, which go relatively smoothly, but they end in a tie, which sends the nomination to the full Senate, Without a clear recommendation. And at this point, although, like, he didn't get a glowing recommendation because it was a tie and a lot of people didn't like him, uh, it was still pretty smooth sailing until things take a turn. And in October of 1991, Anita Hill, who was the University of Oklahoma's first tenured black law professor, came forward, so to speak. She didn't really come forward, but we'll tackle that in a minute. Uh, She said that Thomas had sexually harassed her when he was her boss at both the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights in 1981 and 82 and at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 1982 and 1983. But let's back up a second. How did she even end up before the Senate if she didn't technically really kind of come forward on her own? So she'd actually submitted a confidential
2: statement to the Senate Judiciary Committee saying that Thomas had harassed her 10 years earlier when they were both single. The FBI, per usual, investigated the report, found it to be inconclusive, and the committee decided not to act on it. But then it became clear that members of various senators' staffs approached Anita Hill about her report rather than what would later be alleged that Hill approached senators attempting to smear Clarence Thomas. And in fact, she remained silent publicly until just two days before the full Senate was set to confirm Thomas, when someone leaked the statement
3: to journalists. And that happened on October 6th, and NPR and Newsday broke the story. And once it broke, Anita Hill famously said, I felt I had to tell the truth. I could not keep silent. And so you have a lot of different groups, including a lot of women's and feminist groups, in addition to Senate Democrats, helping pressure a testimony into being. And so Hill gets summoned to testify live on TV, delaying the confirmation hearings. And those harassment hearings began just a couple of days later on October 11th with Thomas's opening statements, which journalists noted were bitter to the point that people thought he might withdraw his candidacy, followed then by eight hours of Anita Hill's testimony.
2: And I want to say that it was a pretty big deal that they convinced the, you know, the Senate to air it live on television because they did not want it to be a closed hearing.
3: Yeah. And I mean, sort of off on a tangent, but that very decision would then usher in our era of like celebrity giant paparazzi type of tabloid trials, as we then would see in 95 with O.J. Simpson.
2: Yeah. So With her testimony, Anita Hill's testimony, it was a massive spectacle. There's really no other way to describe it. She was grilled and prodded for eight hours by a panel of 14 white male senators, including old old Joe Biden. But she never lost her cool, asserting that she's not making a formal sexual harassment claim and that she did not ask to testify. And Time Magazine even painted her as... Cool as a cucumber, prim, delicate, quiet, and serious. And I mean, if anyone saw Cecile Richards' you know, Planned Parenthood testimonies before the Senate and even Hillary Clinton's Benghazi testimonies, I mean, those two things were nothing compared to what Anita Hill sat through.
3: Oh, I know. But it, it is interesting. That Time magazine article came out about a year after the hearings, and they were sort of going back and forth trying to... I don't know what they were trying to do. They were trying to paint a picture looking back of how the hearings had gone. And they were sort of, the only way I can picture it is like a cat with a ball of yarn, like batting back and forth the ideas of like, who's lying? Someone's lying. How could it be her? She was so quiet and prim and serious, but how could it be him? He's a big deal judge. And it's like, oh my God, that's sickening. Uh, and I get and they they did a great job of of breaking down what happened in the hearing. But still, it's like, oh, good. Just another notch in our culture of not believing women.
2: Well, and that's also why I so fervidly argue that everyone needs to watch that testimony because when I did see like the Benghazi and Planned Parenthood hearings, flashbacks came of Anita Hill because it's like, it's the same thing. Especially when it came to Cecile Richards and Planned Parenthood of mostly men by that point um, challenging
3: the veracity of what women say about their own bodies. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, so let's get into the allegations. Hill said in her report that Thomas talked about pornographic films and other materials. And good old committee chairman Joe Biden asked her, I'm not sure— I don't know why. I mean, I guess for details, but he specifically requested to know what the most embarrassing encounter was. And she said it was during Thomas's discussion of a particular porn actor who had a really large penis who went by the name of Long Dong Silver, and Senator Orrin Hatch, who would prove to be one of Hill's most aggressive interrogators over the course of her testimony— dug up a 1988 federal appeals court decision citing an obscene photo of a character by that name. And so he tried to discredit her by saying, no, 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 you heard it in this 1988 case. You didn't hear it from Clarence Thomas.
2: Yeah, um, and Hill also talked about how uh, Clarence Thomas would brag about his own sexual prowess, the size of his own penis. And the most famous slash infamous moment came when Hill recounted Clarence Thomas reaching for a can of Coke when they worked together and asking, who has put pubic hair on my Coke? And Orrin Hatch, again, one of the most aggressive interrogators, as you put it, Caroline, said that she simply stole that story from The Exorcist, which features the line, there seems to be an alien pubic hair in my gin. And I just want to know whether Orrin Hatch was like that much Of an exorcist buff to be able to like, you know, pull that out of his
3: hat so quickly, or if that was an intern's job, regardless. I was actually ridiculous. I was trying to picture the same thing about like how how do you send an intern on that on that kick? Like, do you just have an intern who works for you who's like, that's a line similar to one in the exorcist? Like someone who's like really plugged into pop culture. Yeah, because Google didn't exist back then. No Google. Maybe the intern's name was Google. I don't know. But the last telling straw was her last encounter with Thomas as an EEOC employee. So she says that Thomas had been asking her out. He'd asked her out about 10 times. But she declined, saying that dating a supervisor was inappropriate. And so her last day at the EEOC, before taking a position at Oral Roberts University, uh, Anita Hill said that Thomas invited her to a restaurant after work, assuring her that dinner was a professional courtesy only. Sounds all right. It's a way to see me off. I'm leaving for another job. But that last straw, Hill said, was, he made a comment I vividly remember. He said that if I ever told anyone of his behavior, that it would ruin his career. And honestly, aside from a handful, just a couple of people, she really didn't tell anyone. No, and of course, that made her immediately suspect to the Judiciary
2: Committee. And I should say that not all of the senators were... Out to get her, but I mean, it was nonetheless a very hostile room. Um, And in response to that, she said, Listen, I was afraid of coming forward. She reported feeling vulnerable, humiliated, and frustrated. I mean, talking about humiliation, I mean, she had to repeat so many times, Caroline, that pubic hair story. It is mind boggling. Um, She said at one point, It wasn't as though it happened every day. But I went to work during certain periods knowing that it might happen. And that goes to that EEOC definition of sexual harassment where it happens frequently enough that it's creating a
3: hostile work environment. And she was afraid of the repercussions if if she spoke out. Yeah, she was afraid that she'd be overlooked for work assignments, could lose her job, might not be able to find another political job at all in the uh, Reagan administration if she kept turning her superior down. And this had very real physical consequences. The anxiety that she felt dealing with all of this humiliation and frustration contributed directly to her having to go to the hospital for stomach pains, which is something we talked about in our last episode on sexual harassment, that so often victims of trauma and or sexual harassment end up with these very real manifestations of the anxiety and pain they're feeling. And that Time Magazine article that I referenced earlier, after the hearing... uh, They were wondering, like, oh, maybe we should believe her after all. Uh, Because they wrote, given the detail and consistency of her testimony, it was almost inconceivable that Hill, rather than describing her own experiences, was fabricating the portrait of a sexual harassment victim. Duh. Of course she wasn't making it up. And as she herself said, I have nothing to gain here. This has been disruptive of my life, and I've taken a number of personal risks. And she even reported being threatened at the time and beyond the testimony and she went on to say i have not gained anything except knowing that i came forward and did what i felt that i had an obligation to do that was to tell the truth yeah
2: i mean there was absolutely nothing in this for anita hill but what about witnesses what about other women because surely anita hill wasn't the only one this happened to or if she was isn't that so suspect well, the thing is, other women did come forward, but we never really heard about it. I mean, some came forward to support Hill's claims that she had previously complained to them, you know, in private of sexual harassment at the time of the incidents, and some came forward though to complain of their own incidents of harassment.
3: So why don't we know so much about these other women, Caroline? Well, uh, I mean, they were they were stifled by. The Judiciary Committee. Uh, one of the most famous examples of this is the journalist Angela Wright, who is a really fascinating character in her own right. Didn't mean to do that. That's also her last name. Uh, but Wright had worked with Thomas at the EEOC as well and shared similar accounts with Senate investigators, like like the ones that Hill had shared. But Joe Biden <laughs> lifted her subpoena because she wasn't considered credible. So basically, you had Democrats and Republicans who were afraid of Wright testifying because they were worried it would create more chaos. They were worried that it would doom Thomas's nomination. Wright had been fired and or quit from like two other jobs. And basically, she stood up for herself in those scenarios with not so great bosses. But the committee was like, oh, that just goes to show she's unstable. But uh, basically what led Angela Wright into this situation uh, was the fact that she was horrified that Hill was being called hysterical and that senators were saying, oh, there's no problem. It's not like Hill was touched. So Wright talks to her uh, higher ups at her newspaper, the Charlotte Observer, and says, I want to pin a column. I want to write about this. This is what I was hired to do. I'm going to do it. But she hadn't even published it yet when the Senate committee called. And they were like, we're very interested to know what's going to be in your column. And Wright ended up going to D.C. She sits in her lawyer's office for three days waiting to be called. And behind the scenes, what was going on is Republicans and Democrats were working together to basically be like, no, we are not calling her. And, I mean, Wright would have—and and Biden admits this—Wright would have shifted the tone of the whole thing. And she said, I believe her, Anita, because he did it to me. And even a coworker of Wright's backed up her account that Thomas had pressured her to date him, had commented on Wright's appearance, and had asked what size Wright's breasts were.
2: And then you have Sakari Hardnett, who was Thomas's ex-assistant— who wrote to the Judiciary Committee, quote, if you were young, black, female, and reasonably attractive, you knew full well you were being inspected and auditioned as a female by Thomas. And that, which reading this today in 2016, like obviously that is sexual harassment up, down, and sideways. But that also reflects that that kind of Assumption that, yes, okay, this is going to happen to you. If you're pretty enough, you're going to get hit on. But that also reflects all of the retro office advice that we talked about in our previous episode on the legal history of sexual harassment, where, you know, women writing to other women would say, you know what, be pretty for him. It's okay. It's, it's
3: a compliment. He's just paying you a compliment. Well, so while you had these women in the wings who had been waiting to support Anita Hill but weren't called, you also had many who were against her. Some reported conflicting stories to weaken her credibility. Uh, Thomas had a much larger number of witnesses at his disposal to benefit his case rather than Anita Hill's. But you also had the fact that the committee ignored evidence uh, regarding Thomas's habitual use of pornography, although the habit was later documented by so many others, including former girlfriend Lillian McEwen. And so Lillian McEwen becomes an important character in this case because Thomas's defenders cited his relationship with her in order to deflect Hill's accusations. How could he be doing this? He's in this long-term relationship with this lovely Lillian woman. And she didn't testify again. Because of Biden, he limited female witnesses to those who had a professional relationship only with Thomas, which is a laugh because he sexually harassed them, so it's not all professional.
2: Well, and as McEwen would later describe it, she said he was always actively watching the women he worked with to see if they could be potential partners. So you've got some grooming going on. She called it a hobby of his and saying that he— Uh, Asked one woman her bra size at one point, saying how he was obsessed with porn and would talk about what he had seen in magazines and films, if there was something worth noting, which sounds a lot like what Anita Hill was saying. And speaking of exes, though, we should also note that um, one of Anita Hill's ex-boyfriends, attorney John Carr, said, oh, yeah, I mean, I remember her talking to me in confidence about this, but he was so nervous for her when he found out that she was going to have to testify because he knew the climate and
3: he knew what she was up against. Yeah, she was not facing a sympathetic crowd.
2: Oh, and also in retrospect, too, the owner of the porn video rental store that Thomas would frequent because, again, pre-Google, pre-YouTube, said, oh, if, if I had known how things would have turned out, I would have testified,
3: too. I saw him all the time in there. Mm. Yeah, uh, I'm making my disapproving emoji face. Mm. Uh, well, so we've we've heard a lot from Anita Hill. We've heard from Angela Wright. What about what about Thomas? How did he respond? Well, he did not mince words. So Thomas's response to Anita Hill's accusations was uh, none too pleased. To put it incredibly mildly, Uh, he first said that he felt shocked, surprised, hurt, and enormously saddened upon hearing about Hill's accusations. And he went on to, of course, deny that he'd ever asked her out, instead claiming just to be a nice guy, just a friend willing to help her out. And then he famously called the hearings a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks. And then writing about this not too long after— Time Magazine reporters say that basically you felt the whole room still as soon as he says that because he is sort of throwing down the gauntlet around racism. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and he threw in
2: another lynching uh, reference in his relatively short testimony, too. He said, no job is worth what I've been through. No job. No horror in my life has been so debilitating. And he goes on to say, I will not provide the rope for my own lynching. These are the most intimate parts of my privacy, and they will remain just that, private.
3: Yeah, I mean, he went on lamenting about the testimony, how it had drawn out his nomination, how it brought so much scrutiny from the press. He said the process was robbing him of something he could never get back, and it needed to stop, quote, for the benefit of future nominees. He also vacillated between saying he'd rather take an assassin's bullet to this kind of living hell and yet would rather die than withdraw. Uh, but really, the point he repeatedly hammered was that this was a racially motivated attack. And on on behalf of Hill, but also that it was that she was some sort of operative on behalf of the Democrats And he said, I cannot shake off these accusations because they play to the worst stereotypes we have about black men in this country. And if I remember correctly, Caroline, um, in his
2: autobiography, Clarence Thomas, you know, of course, writes about how angry he will always remain about this incident and about Anita Hill. And he said that his response to learning that he had, in fact, been confirmed was, quote, Whoop-de-damn-do.
3: Hmm. Sounds really excited. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that he's spoken from the bench twice in a decade. Anyway. In the meantime, as this is happening, you see
2: the Senate Judiciary Committee attempt again and again to discredit and delegitimize Anita Hill's testimony Because of saying over and over again, you know, the old thing of like, well, how could you even put yourself in this place? It goes back to the standard for those old rape laws where it's like if you did not violently protest, if someone didn't hear you screaming rape throughout the town square, then it just couldn't have happened. So the first question they wanted to know was, well, why did you follow him from the Department of Education to, very ironically,
3: the EEOC? Yeah, and she answered by saying that she thought by this point the sexual overtures, which had so troubled me, had ended. And secondly, like we had said earlier, she was really worried that Reagan might phase out the education department, and so she was worried about losing a job. Um, And then they said, you know, if he's still harassing you at the EEOC, why did you remain in contact with him after he left? and her answer to that was well i might as well remain cordial rather than burning bridges and cutting off all ties since i didn't work with them anymore and no longer felt threatened and of course they then pressed why didn't you cut ties why didn't you know why didn't you burn those bridges and she said if i had done that i would have had to explain this whole situation that i've come forward with today cuz remember she didn't she didn't want to publicize it
2: yeah and so as a result of of all of this so-called evidence against her. Senator Arlen Specter produced an affidavit from John Doggett, a Yale classmate of Clarence Thomas's and an acquaintance of Anita Hill's. And Doggett, in this affidavit, claimed that Hill had cornered him at a party about leading her on, and he referred to her ideas about romance between them as fantasies, to which, of course, Anita Hill responded, I did not at any time have any fantasy about romance with him. But all of this was Senator Specter's way of trying to paint her as just simply unstable. I mean, this woman, again, hypersexualization of women of color. I mean, she she just wanted this sexual attention,
3: yeah. And I mean, Spector hammered her on details, minute details of her story changing. He questioned how valid her memories of events from eight to ten years earlier were. And his example, he said that when you spoke to the FBI in September, you said you told just one friend about the harassment. Now you have two witnesses lined up to testify that you'd complained at the time. And she basically said, listen, you have to take this testimony and the statement as a whole. And, of course, there is no motivation, she said, to show I'd make up something like this. I mean, I can hardly tell you what happened 8 to 10 days ago,
2: (laughs) Caroline, much less 8 to 10 years. Um. But one thing that's really important for us to highlight is the gender and racial aspects of this, of how it ties into the angry black women stereotypes and uh, concerns about coming across that way. Um, women simply being seen as outside of the norm in general, even back not so long ago in 1991. Um and Biden himself even framed it as part of, quote, a fundamental power struggle going on in this country between women and men. So making it a whole, stupid. Yeah, it's making it a whole like he said,
3: she said thing when it mm-hmm. should not have been at all. Well, yeah, and as many articles have gone on to point out, it should have been a he said, they said But um, when you are looking at this in terms of outsiders' perspectives, people who are watching this hearing happen, so many women saw their own experiences echoed in Hill's experience, and so many men were watching their fears about women making unsubstantiated but damaging claims playing out. Of course, unsubstantiated in this case being in air quotes. Um, And although Angela Wright, for instance, back then took issue with how black men were being portrayed in the press, she said she was insulted that Thomas was considered the best African American for the job. If they're going to, like, try to maintain the racial balance of the court, they can at least find a better, more qualified guy, someone who doesn't have this sexually predatory past. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, like, Thomas was absolutely
2: right about the stereotypes of black men in this country, but he was using that to play against, like, stereotypes about women and, and to discredit her. And But if we put gender aside, the African-American community at the time largely stood behind Thomas. I mean, to a lot of people, Anita Hill, a black woman coming forward to
3: testify against a black man, felt like betrayal. Yeah. Yeah. It goes against the idea of solidarity, standing with your community. What Angela Wright said about, you know, I hate how black men are portrayed in the press. I don't want to have another takedown campaign of a black man, but there are better people for this role. And Anita Hill in the 2014 documentary would say, I had a gender and he had a race. And she explained it to Slate's Dahlia Lithwick by saying that you have to keep in mind that in Washington, D.C. in 1991, there was a great deal of entitlement that went along with being male. And they didn't take it into account. And instead, they portrayed him as an African-American who could use the lynching metaphor to his advantage. In other words, this is performance.
2: Absolutely. And meanwhile, though. You know, Lithwick asked Hill how it felt to hide her anger because, you know, we have the whole stereotype about the angry black woman, which has been used historically to marginalize women's intelligence and credibility. So she has to mask all of that, whereas Thomas is able to use his as a way to exert power And Hill said, quote, I don't use my anger as a strategy. And I think that that's what he was doing. That was a strategy. I don't even know how real it was.
3: Yeah. And then you have, you know, we've mentioned this already. You mentioned it earlier, Kristen, about uh, going back to early rape laws about women needing to, uh, they have to perform their uh, anger, pain, fear. They've got to run screaming through the town to prove that they were raped. And this gets at the root of what Democratic Arizona Senator Dennis DeConcini said in that 24 documentary when he said that when women are harassed, they ought to get angry and they ought to raise hell. And Anita Hill is like, uh, uh, excuse me, what? She says, people can't tell us how we respond to our own problems. They shouldn't say, because she didn't act the way I would have acted, it must not be true. You're supposed to bang on the table, but, she said, had I done what Concini said, then I would have been caricatured in a different way. I mean, absolutely. They were already
2: trying to paint her as hysterical. Mm-hmm. And that only would have played into that as well. But the thing is, even after Thomas was confirmed, the gender discrediting efforts did not stop. And this is where we have to talk about an odious man, an odious writer named David Brock and a book he wrote soon after the confirmation hearings called The Real Anita Hill. And it was part of a right-wing smear campaign that continued after Thomas had taken his seat at the bench to portray Hill as a man-hater, a crusading leftist, and a feminist zealot, along with being a spurned woman bent on revenge. So the things that they would highlight were how this woman's never been married. She doesn't have kids. She's ambitious in her career. What is her deal? She must be unhinged, not to mention she is a woman of color. What is she doing in here? She just got into this position thanks to affirmative action. And now she's you know, in cahoots with feminist lawyer Catherine McKinnon to unleash some kind of feminist campaign on this country, and we're not going to stand for it.
3: This feminist campaign to make men act like human beings. Ah, unthinkable. Oh, and we have to mention
2: the most famous-slash-infamous. I feel like this whole thing is famous-slash-infamous. This phrase that Brock used and then was repeated, in it it feels like every single review and even retrospective on the book The Real Anita, Anita Hill in which he described her as, quote, a little bit nutty and a little bit slutty.
3: Yeah, I mean, it really, his book really served to frame the discourse for years, years and years, until he came out and apologized and said he had twisted the truth at the behest of Republican politicians.
2: I mean, but the damage was already done. I mean, the, the, the wildest thing to me about all of this is how when that book came out, Reviewer after reviewer considered it almost like a masterpiece of journalism. Um, Deirdre English wrote a pretty in-depth analysis uh, of the book and the reviews that it had gotten in The Nation in 1993, and she said the only, the only reviewer and commentator on it was op-ed columnist uh, for The Times, Anna Quindlin, who raised a red flag saying, like, uh, we, there's some underlying bias that's pretty evident in Brock's whole argument, and it seems like he's distorting some assumptions, but even she said that he had unearthed some compelling contradictions. But listen to this, Caroline. This will, this will get your blood boiling if it isn't already. In response to this book, over in Newsweek, George Hill wrote that Anita Hill was not a victim of sexual harassment, but of, quote, the system of racial preferences that put her on a track too fast Uh, for her abilities and made her fluent in the rhetoric of victimization. Oh,
3: what?
2: But you know what? I see a lot of that tone reflected in a lot of internet commentary today.
3: Oh, yeah. You're just reveling in being a victim. Don't play the victim. Yeah. Why, why do liberals or feminists or trans people or whoever you are, why do you just want to be the victim?
2: Well, and even in uh, a Newsweek article on this that we read that came out a couple of years ago, even then it spent so much time focusing on, like, how she looked mm-hmm. and called her childless at one point. It's like, seriously? Are we still, are we really focusing on her uterus?
3: We are. Yeah, we are. Because Hill herself has said that she feels that that part of her identity, being a single woman who doesn't have children, really, really colored how people viewed her, the lens through which people viewed her. And she says it still does, which is why, again, it's another part of why she wants to talk about it now.
2: Yeah, I mean and even these contemporary articles that we read for this podcast would usually circle back to her relationship status being like and it turns out she's still not married, but don't worry, she has been in a committed happy monogamous relationship with a with an insurance salesman for a number of
3: years. Yeah, it's like fine. Right? Yeah, it's like the the subtext is still there. And almost immediately though, Hills testimony had amazing ripple effects. Uh, Gloria Steinem, speaking to Newsweek, said that when Hill was not believed, the feeling was that this would cause fewer people to report sexual harassment. But what happened was the reverse, because she'd opened up the subject. Women began to talk to each other and discovered that this had happened to many other women, so it turned out to be a huge national teach-in on sexual harassment. And sure enough, according to EEOC filings, sexual harassment cases in the wake of her testimony. More than doubled from just over 6,000 in 1991 to just over 15,000 in 1996. And over that same period, you also see awards to victims under federal laws nearly quadrupling from $7.7 million to $27.8 million. So even though we clearly in 2016 still have deeply entrenched attitudes that allow sexual harassment to continue, clearly in just that short period, women are starting to be heard. Yeah, I mean, and
2: as another part of the silver lining to this horrific spectacle, you have more women in government. In 1991, when the hearing took place, just two women were in the Senate, and of course, none of whom were sitting in front of Hill that day. But in 1992, you have what has been deemed the year of the woman, which has been credited to fallout from those hearings, which drove a record number of women to run for office, and women won four new Senate seats plus one incumbent re-election and 24 new House seats.
3: Yeah, so clearly making a positive dent. Clearly women are like, oh no, oh no, this isn't going to happen again.
2: Yeah, I mean, and also once you have those women in Congress, you also have more laws being passed tightening up sexual harassment, you know, protections, and also um, sexual harassment protections within the government, like for government employees Mm -hmm. that were not previously there.
3: Ah, Well, so, spoiler, I guess, at this point, uh, in case you weren't aware, uh, Clarence Thomas was confirmed. Whoop-de-damn-do. Whoop-de-damn-do, as he said. uh, And he was approved by a narrow margin, 52 to 48. So, you know— Even though all those Republicans and Democrats were in cahoots to suppress uh, women's testimony, uh, still wasn't very popular. But like Kristen said earlier, you know, he never let go of that anger. And in that 2007 autobiography, he referred to Hill as my most traitorous adversary. But, Caroline, I've got to drop a
2: fact that I learned in the process of researching this podcast, which blew my mind, which— cites, like, how—of course, how much he would hate Hill and consider her his most traitorous adversary, considering that one of his buds is old Rush Limbaugh, he who coined the term feminazi. He officiated, Clarence Thomas did, Rush Limbaugh's third, now dissolved, marriage. Yes. Caroline's eyes are (laughs) huge, y'all. Oh, I hate it. Yeah. (laughs) But— Enough with those guys. What happened to Hill? What happened to Anita Hill?
3: Well, she had grand plans to just go back to her previously quiet and private life at the University of Oklahoma teaching commercial law, but unfortunately— Uh, I guess life had other things in the cards because she didn't stay there long. Probably not because life had other things in the cards. It probably had more to do with the death threats she was receiving. In addition to facing a push from conservative lawmakers to fire her, despite the fact, you know, she had um, tenure. Ah, And while she did want to return to commercial law and contracts, so many people were clamoring at this point to understand sexual harassment and related laws. That she's kept her focus on it, and now she's a professor of social policy, law, and women's studies at Brandeis University. And she says that women still come up to her with like tears in their eyes, treating her like a celebrity. I mean, which I mean, she is to a to a certain degree, but just saying thank you for what you did. Oh, I mean, such a heroine,
2: mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, and Gloria Steinem has said that. Some senators since then have, you know, kind of come back and approached feminist leaders asking, like, what can they do to kind of rectify that wrong that was committed? And Steinem just suggested apologize,
3: just apologize for it. But they've not. No, they haven't. And in a really weird twist, and this kicks off the 2014 documentary Thomas's current wife, Jenny, who was not on the scene during the hearings, left Anita Hill a bizarre voice message at 7.30 in the morning on a Saturday on her work phone saying, I would love you to consider an apology sometime and some full explanation of what you did with my husband. So give it some thought and certainly pray about this and come to understand why you did what you did. Okay, have a good day. And the wild thing is that she was making that phone call not in like
2: 1992 or 3 that was in 2010 and I mean and she you know invokes this prayer rhetoric and stuff and Hill herself is a devoted Christian you know it's not a, it's not a thing of like Anita Hill being a heathen um but Hill of course was stunned by it and simply turned the voicemail over to law enforcement authorities, she was not going to call Ginny Thomas back up and have a little heart to heart. And writing about this uh, for the New Yorker, Jeffrey Tubin said virtually all the evidence that has emerged since the hearings corroborates Hill's version of events. And this, of course, makes Ginny Thomas's phone call to Hill all the more puzzling. And speaking of evidence that has emerged, you know, corroborating Hill's testimony, I do want to recommend. The book uh, Strange Justice, The Selling of Clarence Thomas by Jane Meyer and Jill Abramson, um, because theirs was the book that really, you know, kind of threw Brock's, the quote unquote, real Anita Hill to the wayside and journalistically, you know, revealed what was going on with the case.
3: Imagine that, journalistically. Yes, well, so, you know, everybody wants to know like are you are you vengeful, rageful, like do you throw darts at pictures of Clarence Thomas's face <laughs> as I would? Um, but Anita Hill has told many reporter, I mean, of course I'm angry. I'm angry with him. I'm angry with the senators. I'm probably less angry than I was 10 years ago, but it's still there. And she talks about how bit by bit you let go of anger. And she says, for me, the best way to do that is to think about what my contribution can be to make sure this doesn't happen to other people. She said that the larger goal is both gender equality and racial equality because both racism and sexism contributed to my being victimized. But I don't want to walk around being angry all the time. It's not constructive.
2: And so not only did she speak truth to power, she has been walking her talk. She is doing exactly that. and. What she really wanted to accomplish with that most recent documentary was for young women to know that history and also to know that she's okay. I mean, her parents, who were so old at the time, they sat there watching this whole thing go down. She was, you know, one of, was it, it was more than a dozen children who like grew up in poverty. I mean, she worked mm-hmm. her way into, you know, that tenured professorship Um, So she also wants to shed light on the fact, though, that like we have emphasized so many times, this is not an issue that was just frozen in time in 1991.
3: Yeah, that we still have so much to accomplish. And she said that she basically looks at it from the perspective of, you know, it took a lot of brave women for us to get where we are, uh, but we have not fixed the problem. All we've done is acknowledge it. Well, Caroline, I do feel good that we have you know answered anita
2: hills call to spread this history to young women and to all of the people listening to this podcast um because it's something that we all need to know about absolutely and listeners now we want to hear from you what are your thoughts about it i mean does this experience resonate with things that you've experienced before MomStuff at is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook. And we got a couple of messages to share with you
3: right now. Well, I have one here from Michelle. She says, I just wanted to send through an email thanking you for your recent podcast interviewing Emily Aries from Bossed Up. The first five minutes of the podcast put a name to the rollercoaster of emotions that I've been feeling for the last 12 months. Three years ago, I packed up, left my family and friends, and moved to the opposite side of the country for what on paper was a great job. I've always prided myself on being upbeat, enthusiastic, and passionate about my work. However, by the time I reached the end of last year, I was a mess of exhaustion, anxiety, and cynicism. I started obsessing over the simplest tasks at work, lost all motivation, and spent countless nights awake obsessing over the smallest details from the day. I had stopped exercising and socializing and was feeling isolated. I knew that my job was the source of these feelings, but felt caught in a cycle that I couldn't get out of. At the beginning of this year, I realized that something had to give, and I started considering a career change, but never felt quite brave enough to take the next step. The same day that I listened to your podcast, I finally worked up the courage to submit an application for that job I've always wanted. While it may amount to nothing, thanks to your podcast, the next step doesn't seem quite as big as it once did. Well, thanks, Michelle, and good luck. I've
2: got a letter here from Alicia about our sexist emoji episode, which, by the way, y'all, we've been getting so much great feedback on that and so many great favorite emojis. She writes, a year and a half ago, I was painting a paint-by-number type mural on my bedroom wall and needed something to listen to while I worked. I was late to the podcast scene, so I asked around for recommendations, and my mom recommended your podcast, and I've been working on listening to every episode since then. High five, rad mom. When I listened to your Sexist Emojis episode, it reminded me of a night this past December. My sister and I were home for the holidays, and one evening we were sitting with my mom on her bed looking at all the new emojis from the recent update. We joked that there needed to be a female version of the eggplant emoji, and we spent the next 15 minutes scrolling through the list looking for an acceptable vulva representation, again cool mom alert um anyway our top two favorites are the taco and the side-by-side pieces of sushi sashimi to be honest i'm still a little fuzzy on exactly when the eggplant emoji should be used but i've been known to send my husband the sashimi to indicate that i'm interested in some hanky panky oh my gosh alicia thank you so much and thank you for introducing me To my new favorite emoji. (laughs) And listeners, you can send your letters to momstuffathowstuffworks.com and for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources. So you can learn more about the incredible Anita Hill. Head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.